Anesthesia Deconstructed is supported by National University's CRNA program. National University's CRNA program is one of the nation's top programs for CRNAs and dedicated to making you a successful CRNA. The program doesn't just prepare you for entry-level practice. National focuses on making you a full-service provider and gives you insight into what is actually happening in the industry. With connections to faculty with backgrounds in advanced clinical practice, academics, research, and anesthesia services management. Learn more at nu.edu. Welcome to Anesthesia Deconstructed. Science, politics, realities. Listen in as medical professionals join industry experts, Dr. Mike McKinnon and Dr. Joseph Rodriguez to discuss the latest science and medical advancements, the effects of our political climate, and the reality of today's changing healthcare environment. Let's get started with your hosts, Dr. Mike McKinnon and Dr. Joseph Rodriguez. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Anesthesia Deconstructed. Today, we have an awesome guest, uh, one of the lobbyists from Arizona, Kelsey Lundy, who is a managing partner at Compass Strategies here in Arizona. Kelsey, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I know that the idea of lobbyists is something that no one really understands, but everybody needs. So it's great to have you here. We appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So tell me a little bit about you, your education, and what led you into becoming a lobbyist. Okay. Well, um, I was raised in Southern California, went to school at the University of Arizona, where I was a political science major, and had always been interested in politics, but hadn't really grown up in a super political household. You know, my dad was a small business owner. Um, You know, I was in elementary school when Ronald Reagan became president. So I kind of grew up in the 80s um, under kind of that influence. Um, So literally how I kind of got into politics was I was a sophomore in college and I was trying to get into an upper division class that was very full. And they said, hey, uh, for those of you who are not going to be able to get into this class, uh, Senator John McCain and Senator Dennis DeConcini are looking for interns. And so I went and spent the second semester of my senior or my sophomore year in college interning in Senator McCain's Tucson office. And that led to a year long internship at then Attorney General Grant Wood's office in Tucson. Um, and then my uh, second semester of my senior year, I was fortunate enough to be chosen to be an intern at the Arizona State Capitol where I was the intern for the Banking and Insurance Committee, um, which is where I met a contract lobbyist who offered me a job right out of school. And that's kind of how I became a lobbyist. How cool is that? So basically, it was just (laughs) happenstance that you ended up into your profession. Uh, It is happenstance. And, uh, you know, the, the Arizona State Capitol has a fantastic internship program with the three public universities. And, you know, I've, I have found in my time down here that you either love being down at the Arizona State Capitol or you hate it. <laughs> and I happen to love contract lobbying. That is a really cool story because, you know, you'd think you almost think people are super political and they think I'm going to get in there and make all these changes. And then that's like their plan. But like so many professions, you just kind of fall into it 
through circumstance, you know? That's a that's a great story, Kelsey. So tell me a bit about Compass Strategies, how that became to be and and what your role is there. Yeah, so Compass Strategies is a public affairs firm, which is kind of what we call contract lobbying firm. Um, Compass Strategies has been around for about five years, and I've been the managing partner here the entire time. Um, It had a couple other iterations um, kind of along the way, Um, but I basically kind of manage the clients and manage my my team here. Uh, We have uh, four other lobbyists. Um, as part of the Compass Strategies team. We have a couple of interns every year because I always want to make sure that I give back since that's kind of what led me to uh, what my career path was. Um, and so, you know, our job is to represent our clients down at the state capitol um, on legislation that um, either they are supportive of or that they have concerns with and make sure that we, you know, bring those concerns to the 90 elected legislators down there. Um, we also do a lot of work with the executive, um, which is the governor's office and the executive branch, whether that's uh, working with clients who, you know, need assistance going in and talking with their regulatory agency or their regulatory board on issues that are impacting them, uh, working through rulemaking. So it, it really is focused on uh, what the interests of our clients happen to be at the time. So then when a, when a lobbyist gets involved in a firm, whether it's small or large, do you guys have specialist lobbyists? Like, are there people who just deal with healthcare per se or, or agriculture or something like that? Or is it, does everybody kind of get involved in whatever the clients need as you get clients? So here at Compass Strategies, we have a, a very diverse uh, client list. And so we don't necessarily specialize in any one thing. Um, but certainly there, there are sometimes smaller firms or independent contract lobbyists, kind of one, one man or one woman shop who maybe specialize a little bit more. Um, but it, it's just going to depend on kind of what that firm specializes in. Um, but we are, we are general. Um, we have a lot of healthcare clients, um, such as the Arizona Association of Nurse Anesthetists. Um, but we don't necessarily, our firm doesn't necessarily specialize in any one thing. And, and generally, contract lobbying firms that are of similar size to Compass Strategies are going to have a, a pretty diverse client list. So when, when you then get a client, maybe it's a topic you guys aren't super familiar with. Is there a whole process of learning about all the issues that occurs then with the client? Yes. When we're brought in on in an area that we don't have you know, any kind of specialization or, or a lot of background in, we really rely on our clients to give us the information that we need um, so that we understand the issue, that we can, you know, be able to discuss that issue with elected officials and or staff. Um, so, yeah, when, when it comes to newer issues that maybe we haven't touched on in the past, um, that we tend to really rely on our clients to bring us up to speed. So it's really key that when a client comes to hire a lobby firm like Compass Strategies, that they have a firm command of the information that they're passing on to you so that you can utilize your expertise in in basically politics, which is not the same as understanding the actual topic because it has to translate. You rely on them for, for that ability to advocate for them from the political side. 
Correct, correct. Kind of really what our role is for our clients is we specialize in understanding the legislative process, understanding the rulemaking process, understanding the politics of what's going on down at the state capitol so that we can identify when challenges might arise that have absolutely nothing to do with the issue that we are Mm -hmm. pursuing on behalf of our clients. But there could be other political issues going on um, that could, you know, potentially bring challenges to moving legislation through the process. And so our job really is to be that navigator so that we can, as easily as possible, of course, depending on how controversial the issue is, be able to navigate our clients' interests through the legislative process. And if it's legislation that they want to see passed, you know, ultimately ensure that it's going to be signed by the governor as well. Well, I think it's key because, you know, just at, prior to being involved in my, you know, state association, whatever, 16 years ago, I really didn't understand the process of what happens at the Capitol and all the intricacies that occur that, you know, this bill that has nothing to do with what we're doing is going to suck the air out of the room. So we can't get done what we want to get done that year. Those things are, are, are just nebulous to the average, I think, American and the, you know, volunteer boards that you're probably dealing with a lot. Uh, and so, you know, for, for us, and I think for many, you guys are, are, are the people that understand all those many processes that we just, just don't, just don't see and help us navigate that process, which is that how you would, you'd say that it works? A hundred percent. Yes. I mean, I've been down at the Arizona state Capitol for well over 20 years. Um, and so I, I've pretty much seen just about everything. And, um, and so, yes, that, that is, you know, probably one of, if, if someone is looking to hire a lobbyist, you want to really feel comfortable that they have the experience down at whatever state capital, you know, you happen to be advocating in um, to make sure that they really understand the process, understand the politics of what's going on so that they can be successful in either blocking an issue that you have concerns with or moving an issue forward. Yeah, that makes sense. So is it required? And I know this is kind of a, a, a bit of an odd question, but is it required for a lobby firm or the person who's advocating the lobbyist assigned to the con- the client to believe in the cause? Is that typical? Does it translate if you don't or if you do? Or is it just a professional relationship and you try and do what the client wants? How does that work? So I think that every um, contract lobbying firm or every contract lobbyist is going to view that a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have found in my experience that if you if you don't agree with the perspective of your clients or you question whether or not it's appropriate public policy, it does, in my opinion, it does make it more difficult to be successful. So at least with my firm, you know, we tend to shy away from issues that would be seen as being um, partisan right. um, and or uh, overly political. Um, and and typically that void gets filled by a, a lobbyist who really believes in that issue, whether you're pro-life or pro-choice or whether you're right. pro-gun or pro-gun you know gun control. Um, those those Somebody fills that niche. Um, our firm does not typically take on clients that would be overly controversial or are issues that, to be honest with you, could potentially be divisive even within my own firm. 
Right. I mean, it'd be hard to put a square peg in a round hole if you really don't believe in it. It's hard to sit down across the you know table from a legislator, I would imagine, and and convince them of how this is the right way to go. I I, I think that would be difficult. Um, I agree, and I would say that in my lots of years of lobbying, I I can't think of one issue where I was like, oh, this is a really tough one for me to get across the finish line because I don't believe in it. So. I, I, I have turned, you know, clients away because I'm like, I just don't think we're the right fit for your issue. Um, and so, you know, generally, I mean, I, I have had a very long relationship with the vast majority of my clients and we really work well together. And, and that, that, that makes for, you know, a good relationship when, you know, you can kind of anticipate issues that they are going to care about or have concerns with. Right. And I think your answer to that really just helps to dispel the myth that, uh, you know, the same the same thing that people say about defense lawyers, you take any case, it doesn't matter. And you just pretend that you believe in it. I think it shows how ethical you are uh, as a lobbyist, but also the firm that that you're running. I mean, Compass Strategies, that level of ethics is what people don't necessarily associate with lobbyists. And it's just not true from my experience. Uh, You know, I mean, we've been with you as long as. I've been a CRNA, but for, I think one year. And so, so, you know, from my perspective, all this does is confirm what I already know about you. But I think that for people listening, they have to understand that, you know, lobbyists have an ethical sense, a compass, just like everyone else. And what you said just highlights that fact. And, you know, it's not like you're just out there in your contract hitman. You know, you're, you're really trying to do things that you believe in. I think that's key. Thank you. Thank you. I will add to, you know, one of the most important things about being successful down at the Capitol is ensuring that you are respected, that you're honest, that you're transparent. Um, That's really the key to building a relationship with elected officials and staff and, you know, people who run agencies and boards is knowing that when they're dealing with whoever the lobbyist and or lobbying firm is, that they're a firm that they know that they're going to get accurate information from and be very clear in what their uh, needs are. Um, and that's, that's probably the most important thing about being a contract lobbyist or a lobbyist in general um, at any state, state capital or even in Washington, D.C. Yeah, that's a great answer. And I think that leads us into another question, which is, you know, how do elected officials perceive lobbyists, which part partially you just answered and then you know how um how do how do you guys generally you know build these relationships over time um so i think that it's kind of depending on who the elected official is i think that you know kind of as you stated before you know being a you know lobbyist is something that a lot of people don't really understand whether you're an elected official or whether you're just an average citizen. I mean, I remember when I got into this field, kind of my family was like, you do wh- what exactly? You know, <laughs> they weren't really sure. Um, and so, you know, elected officials, you know, depending on what their background is, you know, if there's someone who was a former city councilman or town councilman who already have had experiences with lobbyists at the local level, um, they don't really view us as, as someone scary or nefarious, right? But you, right. you do get some members um, who come in and, you know, they they have not had 
any experience with lobbyists. They see them as, you know, kind of the, the swamp, if you will. Right. Um, and so it's really just being down there, talking with other, you know, their fellow legislators to get a feel, um, you know, and I've seen elected officials come in who were like, I don't ever want to, you know, they campaigned on, I'm never going to speak to a lobbyist at the state Capitol who get down here and realize that every issue down here has somebody who cares about that issue um, and have a lobbyist working on that issue, whether it's an issue that that elected official really cares about. Um, but there are, there are a few who, um, you know, their prerogative on whether or not they want to talk with lobbyists, but it's pretty hard to find an issue that any elected official really cares about that does not have a lobbyist working on that issue. Right. Yeah. There's going to be interest from all sides and they've got to take all that into account. And really, you know, people like me can't be down there all the time. And so our lobbyist is the is the face of the organization on these issues that are important to us, whatever your organization is. Exactly. Exactly. So are, do you find generally as for lobby firms, are they typically, I mean, from what I get, gather bipartisan or, you know, everyone has their own personal politics, but you know, do you, would, would someone in your lobby firm be more the Republican, more the, you know, democratic lobbyists that interact with specific uh, legislators that are, you know, kind of more down their, their line of thinking? Is that how it typically works? So you're going to get the, the gamut, right? Um, you know, we, we consider our firm to be bipartisan. Um, you know, if you're dealing with 90 elected officials and as of today, 37 of them are Republicans and I'm like, the rest of them are Democrats. So, you know, you need 31 votes in the House and you need 16 votes in the Senate. Um, and quite frankly, if you're trying to move forward good public policy or you're trying to stop a, you know, what you would consider bad public policy for your clients. In my opinion, it doesn't really matter whether they're a Republican or a Democrat who are voting yes or no. We have to be able to communicate our concerns to both parties. Um, but there are, I mean, there are some firms who would be considered to be a Republican firm or a Democrat firm, but it, it really depends kind of firm by firm and, and contract lobbyist by contract lobbyist. You know, we have never kind of carried our personal party preference on our sleeve when we're down at the Capitol um, and really try to keep the issue specific to what our clients' needs are. And, you know, our messaging may be a little bit different if we're talking to a Republican than if we're talking to a Democrat. Sure. But at the end of the line, it's, it's making sure that we're moving the ball forward for our clients. Sure. And I think that's, that's the guidance you give us when we talk to legislators as well. I mean, you know, I've, I've done lots of zoom calls, lots of in-person meetings, both at, you know, in Washington, DC and here in Arizona. And I think that the key is, is my job, if I'm representing my association on the board is to go in there and represent our issues, not represent any political issues. So when I talk to Republicans, I, I message it in a way that it, that, resonates with them. When I talk to Democrats, the same thing, but the end information is exactly the same. You just Correct. want them to see it through their lens because that's the way they see the world. And that's, that's all that matters when you're there. You know, I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So one question that I get from a lot of people that is difficult to answer 
for me. What is the difference between a group hiring an independent company like Compass uh, for lobbying versus hiring their own lobbyists who only works for them? What's the pros and cons there? Um, so everyone does it a little bit differently. I know organizations that have their own in-house, that's what we call them, in-house uh, lobbyists, mm-hmm. who also then have an outside contract lobbyist. Um, I really think that it's, it's going to be um, specific to any individual organization or company. Um, you know, if you're talking about kind of a, a large private company, you know, they may have an in-house government affairs person who covers 10 states. Um, and they have contract lobbyists like a Compass Strategies who really focuses on just their specific state. So in my case, Arizona. Um, so, so that's a model that a lot of kind of large national, uh, companies take. Um, for, you know, local companies or local associations, um, it's just going to be, to be honest with you, like what, what's their budget? Some have a budget where they can have an in-house person who's kind of the specialist, as you had asked about before. Like, are, you know, do what do we specialize in anything? Well, or we generalize in everything. So, some organizations like to have someone in-house who is that expert on their issues, um, but then also decide that they'd like to have an outside contract lobbyist because of the vast relationships that we build um, in general. Because that's you know that's what my my company is built on is our reputation and the, and the relationships that we're able to build um, down at the state capitol. All right. That makes sense. I think the, I think the relationships is your currency uh, in at the capitol. You know, you've, you've developed a reputation based upon, you know, respect that, that you're not going to come there feeding them BS. You're going to come there with information facts and, and your side of the story. And that's, that's key, I think. And, and that's what gets things done. Because that's why your firm has such a good reputation. Um, yes, it is definitely the building of trust um, and ensuring that you are getting them relevant, accurate information um, that they can then take back and make a decision on. Right. Yeah. And so I guess part of that whole, like, you know, contract versus in-house what happens with things like conflicts of interest? So that's one of the things that a lot of people ask about. You know, obviously, if if you're if if you're representing Group A who is for A, and then there's Group B who is for B, and these things don't go together, or they there may be just slight overlap but against each other. How does a lobby firm that's a contract firm deal with that versus in house? In house obviously just represents their side, but for you guys, if you have two different types of you know overlapping issues? How does that work for Compass? Um, so I would definitely say that part of the reason that we have a very diverse client list is exactly is, is exactly that. We want to ensure that we don't have conflicts of interest amongst our various clients. Um, and so uh, we, when, when we bring on or we are talking with a potential new client, um, we're going to do a conflict of interest check. So do we have clients currently who would not be aligned with the potential client. And we we have, you know, turned down potential new clients because they would conflict with one of our other clients that we currently have. Um, and then we'll make recommendations on other lobbyists that they could go out and hire. But, you know, it is it is very difficult to deal with conflicts of interest. Um, I, I have seen other firms who 
um, those types of things arise, and they're very uncomfortable, quite frankly, for the mm-hmm. firms that have them. Um, we, as Connect Compass Strategies, are, are very um, confident that when we're bringing on a new client, that they do not have a conflict with our existing clients. Right. And that to me makes much more sense than trying to ride the line with conflicts because all you're going to end up with is unhappy people on both sides. That doesn't help the firm, doesn't help the clients. It's not going to, it's not going to translate well, I think, to, you know, the people that are listening to the story either. Well, and it is a bit awkward when you have a controversial issue and you see, you know, lobbyist A with a firm signed in in support and lobbyist B with the same firm <laughs> signed in an opposition, that's a little difficult to explain. So right. as managing partner, I, do, I I would never get myself in a situation where we have one person in our firm representing one side of an issue and another person mm-hmm. from our firm representing another. That's not something that that we would entertain here. And so we are, like I said, very... Um, very meticulous in going through and making sure that those types of conflicts won't arise. Yeah, that would be a bad look. And I think it would further the perception that lobbyists are just hitmen when that's not necessarily true. You know, Correct. All of a sudden you, it wouldn't, it wouldn't look good. It would be a bad look for sure. Well, and I think that, you know, the saying, you know, one, one bad apple spoils the bunch. If, you know, one lobbying firm has a, a big conflict of interest, you know, sometimes it kind of, it's perceived that everybody does it, but that is it is it is rare that you see uh, a firm that has a, a significant number of conflicts. So, what sort of challenges do you have with clients? Like you know things like unrealistic expectations. I mean, I'm sure new clients that come on board that don't have any involvement in politics outside their personal side struggle with how all these things work and what how things really work at a, in a capital and how things really work in politics. What kind of what kind of things are you, have you seen in your tenure? Um, I, I think that you kind of probably hit on the, the biggest one that can be a challenge, which is unrealistic expectations. Um, you know, we we try very hard to set expectations when a client wants to go after an issue, especially if it's one that you know is going to be controversial. We want to make sure that they understand what the challenges are in in moving their issue forward or what their challenges are if legislation is introduced that really negatively impacts them. Um, and so we really try to walk our clients through what those expectations are. Um, and I think that that really helps with having challenges with your client is that they really understand um, the process. They really understand um, where the challenges are going to be. Um, and you really do a good job of setting those expectations up front so that you know, if you aren't successful in the first year and with uh, AANA, we've, you know, ha- had those setbacks before mm-hmm. um, and you kind of regroup and, and move forward again. But um, I, I've been fortunate. I, I feel like I have a fantastic uh, group of clients. Like I said, most of them we have worked with for a very long time. Um, and so uh, we have a, we have a very, very good relationship and, and working with them early on in, you know, crafting legislation to fix whatever the issue is that they need fixed um, so that they, you know, understand, you know, we actually had a, a client this year who was moving forward with legislation and um, they were offered a compromise that they decided that they didn't want and they preferred that their bill 
not move forward this year, then accept the compromise and they're going to regroup and we're going to go back next year. Um, but that was, that was their decision. We kind of laid out what the challenges would be, um, for whichever way they went. And then they made an informed decision and then we executed. Well, I think, I think that really hits a lot of those points that, that people don't understand. You know, it's what I've learned in, you know, 16 years of being a CRNA and involved every one of those years in one way or another is that it's not enough to be right. So just because you may think you have the, like the well, clearly this is, I mean, this is obviously the correct thing. Doesn't it, it's, that's just not how it works. And so, you know, from my perspective, when I, you know, when we have these bouncy discussions about a topic and Kelsey says, yeah, that's not going to fly. What I understand is it's not going to fly. It doesn't matter if I think it's right. And, and the reason for that is because you have an insight as a lobbyist and, you know, with tenure that, we will never have in that same level. And, you know, often I think, and you probably see this from clients your whole career is that, you know, you feel like, Oh, well, but, but, but this is the right thing. So it should happen, but that's just not enough. Have you seen a lot of that? Um, I, I have, I have. And, you know, the interesting thing is, is that for, you know, like, like what you said, you have a client, they're like, we are a hundred percent right. Um, sometimes there's, the opposition, right? And they think that they're 100% right. And they have a completely different perspective on on the issue. And so that's, you know, again, that's part of the communication that you have with your client is, is yes, I agree with you. Your perspective is right. But you also have to kind of step in the shoes of your opposition to see where they're coming from. And quite frankly, when clients can do that, it actually helps in evolving our arguments um, to be able to combat kind of this opposite perspective. Playing devil's advocate, basically. Steel Correct. sharpens steel. Correct. Yes. Yes. It's a very good way to put it. Yeah, I think that's I think that's something you learn the hard way in an organization. <laughs> that's just how it is. And it can be frustrating, right? It can, you know, and and you know, nurse and that's you know, the the kind of uh, turf battle between nurse anesthetists mm-hmm. and and MBAs anesthesiologists, um, you know, we run into a lot of those frustrations as we're looking at things that from, you know, the nurse anesthetist perspective is, you know, quite frankly, unfair. Um, And, you know, it it can be frustrating when you hear, you know, from our perspective, kind of arguments from the other side that we're like, those are blatantly unfair. Um, But, you know, those, those are the two perspectives that elected officials are hearing. And so you need to make sure that you are able to, you know, really articulate um, why you believe that your side is is right. And sometimes you have to compromise a little bit in order to keep moving the ball forward. Absolutely. I mean, you know, what do they say? A a good outcome is when both, both parties are not totally happy with the, with the decision. (laughs) That, that is typically what they talk about when you, when you talk about a compromise. Both sides are not 100% happy. <laughs> so what is your advice uh, on how an organization can find a good lobbyist? I mean, obviously in Arizona, the only one I would tell anyone to go to is you. But, but outside of there, what sort of things sh- should associations be looking for? I know budget's a concern, but only they know that. But like, you know, just the other things that you look for, how, how does anyone getting into the market, looking for a lobbyist, even know like, what are the, where do they go? 
Well, I would definitely say um, that you want to do your research, right? You want to see, you know, what type of clients does this firm represent? And if you're seeing kind of, you know, a, a, a good diversity of clients, um, none of which kind of, you know, concern you, um, you're going to want to look at, at how long the lobbyists within that firm have been working down at the Capitol, um, what kind of issues that they've worked on, what their successes have been. Um, and kind of once you, you know, making recommendations, ask other organizations that you are friendly with who may also have lobbyists, or if a member of your organization um, maybe knows and has a relationship with an elected official, um, certainly getting feedback from others on, on firms that they would recommend, I would definitely say is a, a good way of moving forward. And really, a lot of it is going to be kind of chemistry, right? It's going to be right. you sit down with that firm, and I, I think that you're going to find pretty quickly that you're going to sit down with someone and be like, I mean, it's just like if you're interviewing someone for a job, right? right. Someone to come and work for you. There are going to be times where you interview someone, and you're going to be like, you know, they have a great resume, and you know, they're you know they're a good person, but I'm just not I'm not feeling it. Right. And then you sit right. down with someone else who has, you know, just as good of, um, of a background and a resume and you really kind of connect. Um, so a lot of it is going to be, you know, a first doing your due diligence on the firms that you would want to even interview um, and then sitting down with um, that firm and, and getting an idea of, you know, who's going to be working on your issues. Do you get along with that person? Um you know, how long have they been down at the Capitol? Um, I would definitely say, um, while when people ask for recommendations, should call and talk to either other clients of ours or elected officials. Of course, I'm going to give you the names of the clients and the legislators who are going to say great things about me. <laughs> yeah. But I think that it's still important to ask for those types of references and make those phone calls. Um, to, to get their perspective on, you know, why they think Compass Strategies or whatever lobbying firm or lobbyist it is um, would be a good fit for their organization and getting that insight. Yeah, I think those are good are key points for people to keep in mind when they're looking because it's, you know, if you're a brand new organization looking for a lobbyist, you're in the dark. I mean, it, it, there there has to be some guideline on what to uh, framework on what to look for. And I think you just provided that, which is huge. So. Yeah. The other question I would have is then if you have, if you're, if you're an organization, you have a lobbyist and you have, and you, you, there's feelings within the organization that nothing's being successful or getting done or they're frustrated. How does one assess their lobbyist? So, you know, I've had organizations say, well, we've had this person for 30 years and they're just so great and they just love us, but yet they're, none of their bills ever get passed. Nothing ever gets changed. That may not be the lobbyist's fault, but from their perspective, you know, Length of time doesn't always equal great. So what would be your advice on how to assess, you know, what's happening with your lobby team? I would definitely say that if you've had a lobbyist for a long period of time and you haven't been able to move your issue forward at all, and whether that, you know, you're, you're getting in front of elected officials who are listening to what the needs of your organization are, legislation that just never seems to move forward year after year. Mm -hmm. um, I, 
to me, that would be the point where you sit down with your current lobbyist and say, we're not seeing, we're not seeing our issues moving forward. And, and we, we want to either understand from you what we need to do in order to move those forward and set those expectations between both what the needs, what the lobbyist needs from the client and what the client expects from the lobbyist. Um, and it, it could just be that um, it's not a good fit anymore. I mean, that right. that can happen. I mean, especially, you know, with organizations and, and lobbyists that have been down at the Capitol for a long time, maybe they're not setting aside enough time for that, that client. Or maybe, you know, it's, it's not being communicated in a way that's being successful. Um, but, you know, certainly with any lobbyist, and I would expect all of my clients to do this with our firm, is, you know, we need to be able to show value to every one of our clients. And if we're not able to, to show value, we either need to re-examine as to why we're not bringing value to the client. Um, and certainly, I expect that my clients expect us to bring value. So sure. if you're in a rut, if you feel like you've been treading water, um, then that's definitely, I think, step one is to sit down with your lobbyist and really know that you're both on the same page, again, as to what the expectations are. Um, and, you know, if, if it's just not moving forward, I I would say that at that point in time, it's, we're going to, you know, politely part ways, um, mm -hmm. you know, and you go and you look for someone new. Right. And I think during this conversation, You've highlighted how that works because you said, first of all, you start off with having a real conversation about setting expectations, what the obstacles are going to be, what the, you know, the chances maybe of moving, you know, something over the goal line might be. And then afterward, every time, you know, that we've been involved in these conversations, there's an after action report of what went wrong, what went, what went well, what we can change, obstacles that are, that are movable, obstacles that are not. And I think, you know, from my perspective anyway, if, if I had a lobby firm over a long period of time that never had anything get past the goalpost, but we didn't have those discussions, that'd be a, that would be a, uh, you know, a red mark, a, da a danger sign, a red flag, you know, if, if we weren't having those, all those conversations already. Agreed. Agreed. It's very, communication is key in order to have a successful relationship between an organization or a company and their lobbyists. So that you're constantly, you know, understanding the needs and understanding what your lobbyist is doing the directions forward. Right. And so um, from your pivoting a little bit, from your perspective mm -hmm. and, and just from the lobbyist perspective in general, how important is it for an organization's members to be involved in advocacy and lobbying efforts? Or just, should they expect that the lobbyist just does it all for them and they pay monthly and then they and then everything happens? So I'm going to be very specific to kind of volunteer organizations. So like the Arizona Association of Nurse and Right. Um, I will say that I would give a lot of credit to the successes that the AVANA has had over the years to the involvement of their members. Um, having strong advocates within an organization who are willing to put in the time to get to know their local elected officials, are willing to come down to the Capitol to have meetings to bring that expertise, you know, person on the ground dealing with these issues day in and day out. 
that really, really um, can make or break an issue. Um, yes, the lobbyist has to do a lot of the, the, the groundwork, right? Like make sure we, we get the right meetings, make sure that your legislation gets, you know, sent to the right committee. You know, you have the right champion and sponsor. Um, but from my perspective, those associations and those organizations that have a commitment from their members, and typically it's going to be their board, um, that, that really does make them more successful in the long run down at the Capitol versus just, you know, I'm going in to fix some tax law, right? Right. Yeah, a lot <laughs> um, less interesting. And, and especially, um, especially when, you know, you, you have these turf battles, right? And it's mm-hmm. around healthcare. You know, these issues are very complicated. Healthcare is very complicated. And it's really easy to kind of confuse the issue from the other side. And so relationships, I, I have my clients, I, I try to have my clients do and we help them with is whether they're, um, you know, a company that has locations all over the state or whether it's an organization that has members all over the state. Um, we really like to have a personalized touch where we try to set up local elected officials, so legislators in their own district with someone from that organization. And um, it, it doesn't always turn into a relationship where you can pick up your phone and call that legislator directly, but certainly those are relationships that end up happening. Um, you know, we've had some very strong advocates down at the state capitol and in many of those cases they have established a relationship with one of the crnas in their district who if they have a question about something sometimes the elected official will call up that crna and say hey this issue's down here at the capitol i'd really like to know your perspective so we really try to involve the members of an organization um who we work with um and you know as we know with any volunteer organization, um, some are going to set aside more time than others, but I really do credit the um, involvement of members of AZNA, the Arizona Association of Nurse Anesthetists, with the successes down at the Capitol because they have put in a lot of time and effort in building those relationships. Yeah, those grassroots key contact mm-hmm. stuff is, is really important. Do you, do you see, is it a lot? Do most associations do things like that, or is it less common? I mean, it's going to be hit and miss. Again, typically, it's going to be an organization's board who have kind of already made that commitment that they're right. going to, you know, put in the time and effort. Um, but another thing that you have to make sure that you do is is not let those folks get burnt out, right? Yeah. And that you are con- continuously growing and identifying members within your organization um, so that you, you know, kind of, kind of keep that level of involvement there. Right. You, you want to, you want to grow new members who are just as excited to get things done. Exactly. So how much do political action committee donations play into lobbying and success? Um, so I think that there's like a big perception out there amongst kind of the general public that, you know, pay to play or a steak dinner for a vote. Um, and, and tax are important, right? You do want to be able to 
show, you know, elected officials have to raise money in order to get their messaging out to their constituents to be, to get elected. Right. Um, and so they're going to be, you know, raising money from those within their community. And then certainly, certainly those who advocate on behalf of organizations at the state capitol. So having a PAC, I think is important, but it's really more important so that you can support those members who have supported you. Right. Um, a thousand dollar or a five hundred dollar tax contribution to a legislator is not going to guarantee a vote. That is that is not that is it is it is symbolic. But when you have um when you're when you have a relationship or you have a legislator who really has been supportive, has really wanted to help solve your issue, you know, you want you want to, to kind of thank them for that. You want to be able to say, you know, you supported me. We want to show you that we support you as well. Um, but certainly it does not guarantee anything, right? I have, I have found in my long, long tenure down here um, that there is no quid pro quo. Um, it really is about establishing those relationships and that trust. And, you know, going out to dinner is really just a more informal way of having a meeting, Right. right. Um, you have, you know, clients that come down to the Capitol and you want to get to know a certain legislator a little bit better. And so having lunch or having dinner is a way to do that outside of a 15 or 30 minute meeting in their office. Um, and so I think that the, the perception of, you know, giving big dollars or taking people out to nice dinners is, is somehow tied with how they're going to vote. And that has not been my experience during my time down at the Capitol. Yeah, it's more of a personal investment over time as opposed to a a dollar investment from a PAC donation, I think, that Correct. that gets people the relationships that you need. And I think right. that, you know, one of the things that a PAC does say about its membership, because, you know, PAC dollars are transparent, everyone knows where they go, how much you have, is the involvement, passion, and and sheer desire of the membership commitment of the membership. Yeah, exactly. You know, for their issues, which translates into voting. So I think these things really do matter when, when, you know, even, even if you haven't given the money at that point, just the fact that your members donate to, to their pack and have a a robust pack, I think is important from a perceptual value. And I agree a hundred percent. And what I would say is one of the true, true success stories is the Arizona Association of Nurse Anesthetists. I mean, I've represented you for the most part for 20 years. Um, and what you all have done with the organization is amazing. Um, the commitment that your members have to your PAC and to your organization is significant. And you're right. I mean, they have outpaced many many of the other healthcare organizations as far as participation in their PAC. And it really does show the dedication and the commitment that CRNAs in Arizona have for your profession and moving your profession forward. Yeah, we went from having no PAC and people against having a PAC to having a great PAC. And it's a, it's a crazy transition over this 16 years. Yes. So, and, and like I said, in a huge success story, there are not very many organizations that have accomplished what, um, what AZANA has. We couldn't have done it without you. <laughs> That's the reality. <laughs> 
So if you could pinpoint one of uh, your biggest wins or success stories in your lobbying career, you know, a, a good story, what would it be? Well, I think that it goes right back to AZANA. I mean, I've, I've, like I said, I've been representing you for a long time. Um, we have some of the more controversial healthcare issues down at the Capitol. Um, and, you know, I think that it, it, it shows a couple of things. It shows how you can kind of rise from defeat. Um, I'm going to get the years wrong, but I want to say maybe back in 2013, 2014, kind of all the advanced practice nurses all got together with this big, huge, massive piece of legislation. Um, you know, the, the, the Arizona Medical Association and all of the various specialty associations pushed back really hard. Um, it was a, a, a really big ask. Um, we made, you know, a lot of progress and did a lot of educating, but I think that it, it showed that we had maybe asked for too much. Um, and, you know, a, a couple small pieces, not nothing that had to do with CRNAs, um, did end up moving forward that year. But um, what it did was it had us kind of regroup um, mm -hmm. and really focus in and hone in on what exactly do we need in Arizona to be successful. Yes. We would love to have all 10 of these items, right? Mm -hmm. We would love to, you know, make, make CRNA practice in Arizona the, the, the perfect standard for the rest of the country um, and kind of had to, to lower our expectations a little bit and, you know, came back in the following year and, you know, quite frankly, we killed it. Yes. So we were able to, you know, clarify in statute that CRNAs are independent practitioners um, and that, uh, surgeons and other uh, physicians and dentists that we work with um, are not liable for our actions. And I think that that did a lot to um, kind of set the tone for CRNA practice in Arizona. Um, and, uh, and I think that that's a great success story because it shows that sometimes you don't get everything that you want in the first year and you have to, you know, go back, reassess and move forward and, um, things can be a multi-year process. And I think that that's, um, I think one of, one of the things that I look back on as a, a big success, um, for our firm and for being able to work with a client to have a successful. Well, I think, you know, you know, looking back on that year, that two years, and, you know, it was like, uh, the agony of defeat and the excitement of, you know, winning and, and it's, um, it's how you, I think it's how you operate in defeat. And what you do from that, that matters, you want to fail forward, right? Get better, Correct. learn from your mistakes, accelerate. And, um, you know, I mean, yeah, we didn't get all 10,000 things that were in that bill, which was massive, but we got the things that mattered. And it was the first domino in a line of wins that we've had since because of that, you know, and a large part of that is because of compass strategies and you and you know the 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 fighting of the members the involvement of the members <clears throat> and you know i think mick jagger said it best you don't always get what you want but you get what you need and i think that's what happened that year i would agree with you 100 percent. yeah so kelsey this has been awesome i think it's going to be super informative for people who listen what would you, what one piece of advice would you leave for people about lobbyists in general and, uh, you know, about what organizations should be looking for? Well, I would say that, uh, to keep in mind with lobbyists in general, um, we do not all have, uh, you know, horns and a tail. 
Um, <laughs> we are, <laughs> you know, a profession. And again, you know, what I tell people all the time is it doesn't matter your political persuasion. Um, it doesn't matter whether you, you know, are really passionate about um, an issue. Um, there is someone representing all sides of an issue down at the state capitol. There's, there's no one entity that typically doesn't have a voice. And so mm-hmm. you're going to have typically a lobbyist associated with that. And so, you know, if you think that the gun lobby is really horrible, well, guess what? There's a lobbyist on the other side advocating the opposite position that maybe you are supportive of. So um, it, it really is, you just have to, to keep in mind that everybody deserves to have a voice. Um, and, and the most effective way to get that voice heard down at the Capitol, in many cases, if you don't have the the time to be able to go down there and establish all these relationships on your own because you have a full-time job um, is, is through a lobbyist advocating on your behalf. I love it. This has been amazing. Great information for people to understand better what lobbyists do, how it all works. And, uh, you know, just uh, on a personal note, I'd like to thank you, Kelsey specifically and compass strategies for all the hard work you've done for us. You know, AZNA cannot say enough good things about you. And, um, and, and that's why I wanted it to be you on this podcast, because I knew we'd get straight answers, real talk and the information that matters because I, I never question whether I can trust your advice. And that's, that's, I think that's the key to have an amazing person who's representing you is that you never have to question if you can trust their advice and that's you. Well, thank you, Mike. I really appreciate it. And and we have very much enjoyed our longstanding relationship with AZANA and look forward to continuing to have wins together. Thank you so much, Kelsey. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you. That's all for this episode of Anesthesia Deconstructed. For more information based on today's discussions, be sure to visit us at anesthesia-deconstructed.com. You'll also gain access to our blogs, editorials, and more resources to keep you updated on the science, politics, and realities of today's medical industry. That's anesthesia-deconstructed.com. 